Hey, you guys, Thomas here. I just wanted to thank you uh, all so much for tuning in. The response to my and Alex's announcement of the podcast has been overwhelming and your support has just been awesome. Uh, I wouldn't be able to spend this much time in the editing and producing Bay if it wasn't for you guys. Uh, the intro music today is by Ochre and the outro is by the KVB, uh, a couple of my favorite bands. And I just want to thank them for both uh, graciously letting me use their music for the show. They've been really cool. So definitely go and grab their stuff on Bandcamp and buy their concert tickets and everything. Uh, you won't regret it. This is a really great introductory episode and I poured a lot of work into it to make it feel about as professional and seamless as it could get. So I uh, hope you enjoy the listen. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the medium itself, like why I feel like, why I think film is so special and important, why I think that it's important for our age and why I think uh, talking about film is so important. Part of my, like, my, my sense of what film is and if you could say my theory of film. And I was just thinking about it and it occurred to me, I feel like a lot of people have this idea uh, if you think about what's what's artistic about film or what's um, important about film, a lot of people I think would agree with that kind of idea. I think of Roger Ebert who put it as something like film is like an empathy machine or something like that, that, that films generate right. this kind of empathy that makes sort of an ethical point in society. And I thought that's a good starting point because I, I feel like for me, film is, is the opposite of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> How would I get the, uh, did you see the intro I wrote? Yeah, I like it. I saw it. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good. All right. In that case, I'll do it. You do have a, wait, do you have a PhD or? Uh... Yeah, yeah, it's a PhD in literature. Okay. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Doppelgangers on Film, a film theory podcast where we look at the strange, the psychological, the social, and the slimy aspects of all kinds of movies. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Alexander Bovey, PhD, and my name's Thomas Radke, a bachelor's degree. This is uh, episode zero, where we're going to lay out some details about ourselves, our idea of movies, and uh, some foundational concepts, as well as a roadmap of the episodes to come. Doppelgangers on Film is going to be a somewhat academic show, but please don't let that push you away. We want this to be as approachable as possible. There's never going to be any extra reading to do unless you want to. And our main goal is really just to inform and entertain. In the interest of that, later in the episode, we're going to lay out some key ideas that will inevitably follow us around. Some of the bigger words or like words that we're going to be using in an interesting way, usually a French way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And for every big idea that gets thrown out too, there's probably going to be an equally goobery, a hot take or just sincere gushing about some kind of movie we love because ultimately we're not here from some scholarly pursuit to pick apart films like surgeons. We're just here because we love movies and we want to share and deepen that with whoever's going to listen. So without further ado, how about you introduce yourself, Alex? Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm Alex Bovey and uh, I teach uh, literature. I specialize in Victorian literature, actually, and I teach literature and film at Pacific University. Thomas and I met actually at Pacific several years ago and uh, have done a lot of talking about film over the years and just decided, you know, I think it would be a great opportunity to do a film podcast. Yeah, yeah. And this was, it was kind of your idea, actually. Like, I do want to <laughs> emphasize yeah. that is that it's funny that you named me the host the other day, <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> which I think, you know, I'm going to be editing, I'm going to be uh, doing a lot of the legwork here. But um, I think the core of it is spawning from film classes you already do. And yet our, our shared appreciation of film 
I, I went out of my way, like way out of my way to take a bunch of classes with Alex uh, when I was going to Pacific <laughs> University, you know, skipped out on homework so that I could go and watch his uh, screenings of movies, which were everywhere from Alfred Hitchcock to uh, Jans Funkmeyer, <laughs> yeah. uh, like a, a stop motion fantasist from like Czechoslovakia yeah. or something. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, from Prague, yeah. <laughs> Prague. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I like that idea that it's sort of like uh, grounded in the idea of the film class because it's sort of the best parts, I hope, of the film class, which is just, you know, when I teach film, I want to get people interested in it and I want people to uh, to get excited about the movies. Um, I got mixed reviews uh, for a lot of my classes uh, in a lot of ways, especially, of course, like the post-humanism on film uh, lit course, you know, not everybody could get into that. But I I did notice a lot of students, like whether they liked it a lot or not, they often said, you know, that they saw me as very enthusiastic uh, about about my subject. And I feel like that's that's kind of my goal anyway, is like to try to translate some of that enthusiasm about film um, yeah. to, to, to our audience. And I think part of that is like, it's not just like, you know, this is a great film, but helping people really appreciate understand what's so great about film and how to appreciate the complexity of films. There's so much going on. Films are, yeah. are not just entertainment by any means. And so, uh, you know, kind of giving people an idea, hopefully uh, helping people develop that idea of um, what, how to, you know, enhance your ability to engage with film. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's something really important about that. Like, I think, yeah, there's like great movies, you know, that are kind of like universally agreed upon, but there are great ways to watch not so great movies mm -hmm. um or or movies that are great in in really interesting and unique ways that can slide underneath um public perception or you know go over people's heads like there's a bunch of i think we're going to be talking a lot about uh misunderstood films yeah uh in fact our first episode is going to be about us jordan peele's second foray into feature-length directing and that's a movie that I think a, people, a lot of people thought they clocked and just kind of moved on from it. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And it's something that I think invites a lot more discussion and a lot more analysis and interest um, really than it got. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a great example. I think you're right. I think Us is a great example because um, I think that's exactly right. Like people didn't necessarily know exactly how to engage that movie, you know, like, is it just like a kind of genre horror film? And if so, okay, it was cool and scary, but uh, what's next? And, um, and I think you're right. I think that that film is going to go down as one of the great films of, of the era. Uh, personally, I think it will. And, and I think uh, it really bears a lot of thinking about and analysis and discussion. And, uh, and it's a great example. And, and, but we were saying that too, it also occurred to me is that there's also the flip side, which probably I'm not as kind of interested in, but like the idea that some <laughs> movies are, are the opposite. They're sort of like so popular that, uh, you know, that people that uh, often people like us or like me anyway, academics completely dismiss them, but a great person on yeah. like that is Zizek. Right. So he loves, he loves talking about Titanic for instance, you know, and I would not, I would not have spent too much yeah. time thinking about it, but then, you know, it kind of reflects our <laughs> zeitgeist in a way that's very interesting and he shows how it does that. Yeah. Oh my God. The, uh, he talks about, I'll never forget the, the monologue about the way that the rich, um, 
yeah, are vampires uh-huh. and, and they yeah <laughs> and they speak one way and they and they do the other is she's like you know i'll never let you go jack and she like yeah. you know physically let lets him him go. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> um, yeah and yeah that's gonna be the other thing is we're coming at this from uh like yes like a realm of theory but also hopefully of the kind of intuition based almost punk rocky but i'm not going to claim that perspective that that people like Zizek come from where we're, you know, uh, nominally leftist. And I think a lot of our analysis kind of pushes into that realm. I was introduced to a lot of leftist theory by uh, Alex and kind of took it and ran with it, you know, in all sorts of different directions. So yeah, yeah, there's definitely popular movies too, that I think are going to be great for analysis later down the line. You know, I don't, know if i want to force you to watch uh any transformers movies uh, or whatever <laughs> that'll take a little bit of doing so <laughs> but i don't know you know there's like something baffling and like weird about them that i think shines like just as bright a light yeah. on kind of western culture and everything as you know your your most in the depths art film yeah i agree there's something there's there's often often it's the biggest films the most popular films that tell you so much about the zeitgeist and well, where culture is and the prejudices, and I, you know, especially I think that's a big point of Zizek. Like, uh, it's a great window into ideology in a lot of ways, and sometimes a critique yeah. of all ideology too. But yeah, sometimes you know. it's mostly just like a, like a fucking scary window. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mostly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'll introduce myself a little bit. We kind of got off track, yeah. but uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, my name's Thomas. I uh, am a really recent qualifying undergrad, actually. I, I started going to Pacific University back in 2012, screwed around for like six years. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, after like working part time and all that. And I've, yeah, I've got a lot of varied interests. I do a hell of a lot of reading, but largely what I've been doing for the last few years is bartending. <laughs> that's, that's the way I, I kind of earn my money. Uh, and on the side, I would read about film and I would occasionally like I worked at a uh, couple of uh, movie theaters as a bartender and uh, always talked a little too much <laughs> with <the> customers <laughs> but yeah like that's i think this is an interesting kind of jumping off point here for me because this is something i've had like a casual you know like hobby interest in for a while i i spent like a lot of the last year uh not being a bartender because of the pandemic and just like building my own home theater and kind of deepening my appreciation for movies in like every way i knew how just like yeah trawling through letterboxd for hours and hours reading the kind of stuff of matt zoller sites and uh, jake cole and a handful of other writers i've been into like deeply into movies since high school when i think i started watching making of documentaries of alien and realized <laughs> that's like four hours of of content and they really only scratch the surface of what went into yeah. making that movie and Combined with some other like film writing that I was getting into at the time, like that was I, I, I became just totally fascinated, and I think it's a really compelling and fascinating way to tell a story, and maybe one of the hardest ways, also. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fascinating to watch how it succeeds and how it fails. Yeah, yeah, it it really is. You know, I, I I've been listening to a few uh, Lynch interviews recently, and you know, he just it's wonderful to listen to him talk about film and he talks a lot about the kind of magical quality of film. Um, but also that complexity of storytelling. And I mean, in a way it's interesting to hear him break it down and say like, it's just these, it's just these sort of planes that are juxtaposed or like, you know, you have, you have a visual story and moving images and you have a, um, a narrative that kind of move along and they have to join up in some way. And that in itself is a, is a very 
I think it's a fundamentally interesting and complex way of storytelling as opposed to, for instance, you know, like the novel, which I, I study and I love the novel, but, um, uh, you know, to have this, and especially maybe even to think about, we could even think about the mechanical nature of it, to have this mechanical visual imagery that happens. Um, and it, it's its own form of storytelling is so fascinating. And it's also, it's also like why film has such a range of potential from absolutely shit to absolutely amazing. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like you know, Hitchcock always says um, he hates how films are just pictures of people talking so often, you know, and he's, mm. he's a director who loved to tell stories visually, a film that will probably end up doing an episode on and probably talking about, I mean, I could never tire of talking about it as vertigo, you know, and, and there's so much of that film that has no dialogue um, and absolutely, yeah, and he, and he, he liked to think about, you know, silent film about just telling the story visually. And that, uh, that's something that a lot of, a lot of films don't even recognize or realize, I think, let alone make use best use out of. Absolutely. Yeah. I showed you that video last week about the, um, previs thing that's happening in the, uh, more popular yeah. movies these days, like especially the Marvel cinematic universe. And, um, it's very strange how we've kind of looped back into this, uh, like kind of talky era almost <laughs> of, uh, filmmaking where we, you know, it, it was just like moving actors around in a, a space yeah. and kind of reducing it back down yeah. To a play that's not even live, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and for as much fun as movies like you know His Girl Friday and all that are and can be, or there's that sense that you know they're they're definitely limited uh, in the way that they're told. Oh yeah, yeah, the, their formula. There's just like a formula of how to tell a story, uh, and the yeah. scenes that have to take place. The, the you know, and the 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 way that it has to, even the rhythm. I think of the film, you know, and then the, and the way it has to conclude. You know, that just forgoes spontaneity and creativity altogether, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And too, I'm I really don't want to do a Marvel Cinematic Universe episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of thinking about that. Yeah. Like everyone's already got their takes out there, but if there's something unique we can pull from that, yeah. like if we ever want to do Baudrillard or whatever, maybe we just do a big episode about that vein of blockbusters. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, we're kind of already in the uh, next subject we're going to be talking about, which is uh, after introducing ourselves, kind of introducing our idea of movies, just kind of our, our, our standing film theory as it is. My own, if I were to like enumerate it, I, I don't know. I, I used to think that movies were simpler, but my idea of them has, has definitely expanded over time. You know, I, I do link it back to the uh, those alien documentaries, you know, and, and also that the making of, of Apocalypse Now. Um, Hearts of Darkness, Werner Herzog films, just like how so much much of them are compounded almost twice as much by the story of how they were made, like how he made Agia Wrath of God when you know by actually going out into the jungle, nearly getting Klaus Kinski and himself killed <laughs> uh, over and over and over again <laughs> with a with a stolen camera from the university <laughs> <laughs> that he graduated from. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that shit is fantastic, and like it adds so much texture to these things, which are already so monolithic. Like to get a movie made, you know, let alone released, is is or you know Herculean. Uh, even, even like the really small ones, you know, indie films or uh, films that only get published online. And I, I I believe in the auteur aspect of movies. I think that people there is often, uh, especially these days, the one person who's 
like DNA is is at the core of it. But I also think I believe almost contradictorily in the collective aspect of film. You know, something that takes hundreds or thousands of people to get made mm-hmm. is inevitably going to have them in it too. Mm-hmm. That like production of art is going to carry their intentions as well as their unconscious. And if there's a bulk of enough people, kind of the cultural unconscious or the unconscious of that industry uh-huh. into it. And the media. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's great. That's right. I really, I think that's, you know, a fundamental for me too, for understanding film is that I do think that there's an auteur. I think there's an artist who's creating something. And at the same time, I think it's a collective and that that thing could never exist without a collective. And, and in a way that's one of the things that's so interesting about film is that it's like, you have to, whatever that artist is, whoever that director is, let's say, that person has to be able to lose themselves in that collective, in the collective of all the others, people working with that director uh, and the technology and the medium itself. Um, You know, even, I mean, it's, I mean, even, you know, you can think of famous examples like Lynch. Lynch has such a distinct style for every film that he makes. You can't not recognize a Lynch film. If you know Lynch, uh, it, it, usually in a couple of minutes, you can recognize a Lynch film. But he's notorious <laughs> yeah. for, right? He's notorious for using what he finds in the moment, uh, for using people. Um, uh, Robert Blake in Lost Highway, I always loved that look he had. And, um, uh, I thought, you know, that's genius. That's, that's there, you know, that just that like simple look at the makeup that's Lynch's genius. And then I found out that's Robert Blake went in and said, this is my, uh, this is my look. Like he did it himself, you know, <laughs> um, but it's, and, and Lynch was like, great, that's fantastic. You know, and I think, you know, it's partly being able to see that. And, and they say he would like, and you know, there's Bob from Twin Peaks, who was, what was he? He was like a tech person, right? He was like a gaffer yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Lynch just saw him. He's like, there's our, there's our evil, evil spirit, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, he would just, there's the evil that lives in like all mankind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm glad, that, I'm glad that the gaffer rolled with Yeah, it. right. I know. He's like, okay, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, I, I find that de- definitely, I find that to be an inherent part of film that you have to have that. And it's, I would even say it is a contradiction in a strange way. There are two things that in some way seem to be uh, exclusive, but they're, they're not. Even people like Hitchcock, who's so famously controlling, you know, he, he, he had the best cameraman who, you know, for, for whatever film he was using that would work with him because he knew that even if he storyboarded everything, you need somebody doing that camera work who was really great. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Someone spontaneous. Uh, yeah, who who has like that eye and yeah, there's some there's there's directors these days. I know that Fincher and Nolan both check every frame before they begin rolling and have you know those like really advanced things. But I you know I think a lot of that is also like mythologized kind of unfairly to everyone else, yeah. you know. And you could look at that as maybe a a condemnation of this nation's perspective on on not just art but history you know about like uh there being the kind of like great man theory yeah where just like you know generally speaking you'll see in a lot of analysis of western culture and art yeah you track the powerful assertive p 
people yeah. who either claim or are, are said to claim this thing. You know, and a lot of you know these people will will kind of push back against that in actual interviews. Like interviewers will walk up to them, and it's like, oh yeah, like you you know you have a a cinematographer and you have a screenwriter, but this is actually all you. Yeah. And the person's like, well, no, you know, like I I'll, I'll, I. I, I know some shots that I want to make, or yeah. I, you know, I, I know like the idea of the story, but like, it's not my job. Like this is, this is an industry, it's work yeah. and it takes like hundreds of people or more to prop it all up, you yeah. know? And, uh, people are like, oh, for sure. Like, uh, you know, I, I understand that. Uh, but how does it feel to be, uh, like the king at the <laughs> center of like, everything within, and all, all things will bend to your yeah, hand. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it's interesting to see how yeah. directors will kind of write that into the script in, in ways too, you know, like I think of Mulholland Drive, you know, with the figure of the director being central to that film and so many Fellini works and stuff like that. And there, there's an element of both like, a, I think, anxiety about that and poking fun at it, but also enjoying it, you know. It's a funny, right? Yeah, and speaking of uh, of Lynch, I, I also I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the medium itself, like why I feel like why I think film is so special and important. Why I think that it's important for our age, and why I think uh, talking about film is so important. Part of my like my my sense of what film is, and if you could say my theory of film. And I was just thinking about it, and it occurred to me. I feel like a lot of people have this idea. Uh, if you think about what's what's artistic about film or what's um, important about film, a lot of people I think would agree with that kind of idea. I think of Roger Ebert who put it as, as something like film is like an empathy machine or something like that, that, that films generate right. this kind of empathy that makes sort of an ethical point in society. And I thought that's a good starting point because I I feel like for me, film is, is the opposite of that, actually. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I think film, I do, I think that film can kind of like generate the effect can be to increase or develop empathy in some way. But that, but the important thing is that's, that is how it does it. And that that's not the main thing that it does. That's kind of secondary. Yeah. And I think to me, I think, that conception speaks to a way of understanding film that I think is kind of naive and even misleading <laughs> and possibly even like ideologically or even dangerously misleading. Cause I think it, it, it goes on this assumption that what happens to you when you see a film is a very conscious thing, you know, like you see a film about, let's say immigrants and you, and you identify, you know, it's like if somebody's story is revealed enough to me, um, I, I'll feel like I know that person and, and, and they'll be familiar enough that I will identify with the, that right. person or those people. And then I'll empathize with those people. And I feel like the interesting thing here is that, that that's a conscious gesture that doesn't necessarily follow at all. Right. Like you can go, it, it assumes that people are, are, are consistent and coherent, right. That you make a conscious right. choice and then you kind of go off and live your life according to that choice. And I think that's just a fundamentally flawed understanding of people. Like, I, I think people are fundamentally contradictory. And not only that, I think is couldn't you say that like the ideology of film kind of like generating your conscious connections, your, your, your identity, isn't that in a way what can allow you to be contradictory, right? Hmm. Isn't that in a way what can allow you to say, oh yeah, I'm a good person and then really live in a kind of unethical way. Um, 
and, you know, and I was thinking, I just, I, you know, just this, maybe not the best example, but it's just in my head. Cause I just saw it a few minutes ago and I saw Lindsey Graham, <laughs> he was saying how, uh, oh, he was asked about like, you know, is there, you know, all the, all the violence that's happening with police and is there a systemic racism? And he just sort of like really confidently patly said, you know, there's no systemic racism. We just went through two terms of an African American president, you know, and I, <laughs> yeah. yep. and, and, you know, and I, and I think that like, that's exactly what you can do. You know, you can, you can use that as a notch in your belt and then be a racist person, you know, and you, right. <laughs> and you can say that. And, and I would even go so far as to say it almost that, ideology almost allows you to enjoy that that repressing that contradiction right like i'm acting and so i think actually so i think that's not i think to me what film that's not what films do that what films do actually is something at the level of the unconscious i think films affect our relationship to our own unconscious they affect us and what they do is in a way they alienate us they alienate us uh from ourselves um, from others in, in a way that allows us then to be part of something universal, hopefully. Right. Because mm. we're all, cause I, you know, and, and, and I, I should, I should, uh, show my hand a little bit here and say <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of the theory I'm doing particularly is influenced by, by, uh, Lacanian psychoanalytic theory. Right. Jack Lacan's. Yeah. 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 And again, I, I want to emphasize, you know, uh, as you were saying earlier, this is, it has some academic aspects to it or some theory aspects to it. But I feel like, I hope that those things can be explained and expressed in such a way that anybody can understand them. I, I think that they're not, yeah. uh, they shouldn't be arcane things that only somebody who, you know, has a degree should understand. They should be something that can be used to talk about film in general. And so that, so I'm really interested in that in film and the way that film, and so, and maybe so like example, like, what do I mean by that? So films alienating film, like, and, and I think that's why to me, there's always something a little bit disruptive, if not even traumatic about film, at least good film (laughs) in a good way. And so I think like, you know, if you ask yourself, like what, what can change? Like you think about people who, um, have prejudices, have racism, you know, think about like all the resistance to progression in gender in our culture, you know, what can change them? I don't think logical arguments have any effect on, no. well, right? Yeah. But I do think art does. I think that watching, I don't know, I'm not like naive. I don't think, you know, if you go see a particular film, you're going to walk <laughs> out being leftist, you know? Um, <laughs> but I think that, I think that uh, watching kinds of films, they change our taste. You know, and as your taste changes, that means that you're changing what you're willing to expose yourself to and what you enjoy. And I think it's down to enjoyment, you know, just like uh, um, some films may allow you to enjoy uh, a kind of repression of your own contradiction, a repression of your own violence and iniquity. Other films allow you to enjoy your understanding of your own lack your understanding of your own elite, your understanding that I, I have to uh, assume this responsibility to myself and open up. And that opens you up to different, to change and do this and a new, new relationship to your unconscious and therefore a new relationship to, yeah. to society. Man, what a what a what a salvo! <laughs> <Right. laughs> We're starting off. Roger Ebert is wrong. Is <laughs> episode zero. Yeah, I love that. I don't know. I I, I kind of agree. I think uh, yeah, Roger Ebert was like really inspiring to me. Is uh, the last you know 
decade or so. But um, I do think that in a lot of ways, he he misses the mark, you know, and, and there is that kind of belief inherent to a lot of his writing that is that is an almost dangerous optimism. And, and sometimes a, I wouldn't say elitist, but there's there's like a ivory tower aspect. Like I, I remember he has this, this really weird relationship with Paul Verhoeven, where he can't, he never could see what Verhoeven was actually doing. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a guy who like hated RoboCop, but loved Crash, I think, you know. Right. He was, he was bashing Lynch um, until basically until Mahone Drive. And then he loved Mahone Drive. And famously, I think, I think Lynch ended up just like bashing him at one or blanking him rather at one of the um, award ceremonies. (laughs) Because he was like, (laughs) you know, kind of, uh, yeah. But I think that's it. That's a good example. Like he, he, because I think he's, you know, let's, he's good film critic in a lot of ways, you know, and, 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 right, and I'm right. always interested in his perspective on something, but, um, but that's a good, those examples are good examples of how uh, a misunderstanding of film hinders your appreciation of it. I would call it liberal, but there's probably a better word for it. The idea that, you know, art can make the change. Uh, and you get those really grandiose pieces like Crash, which are just in the same genre of video, more or less, as the uh, Imagine video that uh, all the celebrities did uh, at the beginning of like <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic. And I think Kurt Vonnegut actually had something to say about it uh, when he talked about him and all the writers that he knew, every artist in the entire world, like gathered together to like make art against the Vietnam War, right. you know, to to say how horrible it was and to stop it either before it happened or to cut it short. Mm-hmm. And he said it had about as much effect as a custard pie <laughs> dropped from a, a ladder seven feet up, you know, um, which is that like, it might've made some people embarrassed, but you know, it didn't like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you're right in that it can change the unconscious of, of somebody or like shift it, you know, but they have to consent to, entering that space to enter the film mm-hmm. um yeah often you know you you need that like initial hook in someone mm-hmm. and there's plenty of people who just don't have the hook that is needed for a movie to draw like whatever audience whose mind it's trying to change mm-hmm. whereas yeah like the person who really needs to see videodrome uh, and understand it probably never will in their entire <laughs> life. <you know? laughs> but that's a great point because like, and there are some, right? Like Hitchcock, you know, um, one of, in my opinion, one of the great directors ever. Um, and, and somebody who has a profound effect on his viewers was very, very popular. Right. Um, and, right. and I think, you know, like that's a good example of Jordan Peele, you know, like Jordan Peele, uh, is doing something, doing something similar it's also similarly, you know, hugely reaches a huge, a lot of people. And, and you can even say, I wonder if there's some kind of, maybe this is my dream world, but maybe there's some, some kind of world in which, you know, you're, it, there's a, there's a kind of, um, a segue, you know, we're watching a lot of Jordan Peele movies may get you interested in watching some Hitchcock movies, which may allow you to watch, right, right. um, you know, some Michael Haneke movies or something like that, which, which, you yeah. know, which not only, not only, I feel like that's a great, you know, like not only would somebody who might need to, let's say, you know, to change a war or to change a racism or something, you know, not only would they yeah. never see a Hanukkah movie, like you just couldn't, you, they couldn't handle a Hanukkah, like it wouldn't have any <laughs> effect or any, uh, it just told, yeah. they would have to reach some kind of point where you could, you could actually perceive it in some way, experience it. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I think that um, too, like we see, uh, I think one of the most humiliating things that happens every year is like uh, when some powerful figure like releases their like favorite films or books Mm -hmm. that came out in a certain year. Like I think Obama on his like film list or something had Sorry to Bother You. Oh, wow. um, Wow. Which is a film that says like you should kill the people that like Obama (laughs) personally empowered uh, uh, over the course of his presidency. Like and um, (laughs) it was like good movie. Like, you know and great it's it's you know it feels like a spit in the face but at the same time i don't think he can like if you're that person you know your brain is like shaped in such a way that you just can't take in yeah what the intention of that is and i think that's a heavy thing with a lot of people is like you know there's a lot of movies that ostensibly try to be about something but people will extract whatever meaning they feel like mapping onto it and it's it's really humiliating as as uh to an artist i imagine but also something they have to deal with every day and yeah and I, I think that like uh sicario the sicario sequel is a great example of that where um the text of the film is this movie that uh tries to take morality and like squish it all up and and show uh, all the kind of gray inside but they they parlay with these images of Islamist extremism and anti-Hispanic racism uh, that you can't actually like extricate from the movie itself. Like people, like you know, the the movie is is a very gray, uh, most probably even left-leaning film as far as it's the morality of the writer and the intentions of the director. But if you watch it with the brain of someone like. Donald Trump or or like any given you know motherfucker on Fox News or or what or you know, the, the even worse ones that have kind of drooped off it like uh like ticks yeah. um these these people have used imagery from that movie as scare footage uh and talked about it as if it were real that's right um, yeah that's right yeah apparently Trump drew lines from that to talk about immigration and stuff yeah. like that it's just it's so crazy yeah yeah, and it's probably because he saw the movies uh, on uh, the trailer on yeah. uh, TV or whatever, because right. that's like all that he spent a lot of his time doing. Yeah. Or like a filter. Yeah, because I can't even imagine Trump watching that movie. It's like it, <laughs> or watching a movie. I have trouble imagining Trump watching a movie, you know, but no, he's a TV <laughs> guy. Probably TV through, guy. Like, yeah. You know, I often think about Tarantino with that, too, because I really I like Tarantino. I love some Tarantino. I like Tarantino's directing. I really enjoy his films. Uh, for the most part, but I often, sometimes when I wonder like, what are, what's somebody else taking? What could somebody be taking from this film? Right. It's sometimes kind of disturbing. Yeah. Like I like uh, a lot of what went into making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. you know? Um, but at the same time, uh, those images at the end, it was, it was one of the most chilling fucking moments I ever had in a theater <laughs> was being with like all of my friends watching Brad Pitt just horrifically murder a bunch of uh teenage girls you know and the whole audience was cheering and like fist pumping and you know they could tell i think a lot of them kind of had that like nervousness in their voice like is this okay but you know someone saw that and was like this is this is rad this is great you know and and it happens more or less outside the context of Helter Skelter, not in the text of the film does it say that, you know, they were Nazis trying to start a race war, right. goaded by the CIA to do so, whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that that's not that's not that. They're like they're kinda 
introduced as hippies. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. you get to see the hippies die horrifically. Yeah, yeah I think there's a, a aggression against hippies in that movie for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a way that's like unmistakably reactionary. And like if you look at his previous film to that, uh, yeah, what he did uh, in Hateful Eight, like the climax of that film is uh, two men cackling as they lynch a woman, yeah. you know? Right, um, right, right, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting and it's grotesque. And on some level, he knows that. But yeah, there's the there's that idea of as an artist, you can't control what your image does once it's out in the wild. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. And I think he's aware of that and likes to make transgressive things yeah. kind of in his own ways to show that he like really doesn't care, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, yeah. or, or to just like push that line, which is an interesting artistic statement unto itself, if not like definitely reactionary and and somewhat violent yeah, yeah it's inter- it's interesting too because he i've heard him defend it his kind of like extreme violence by saying um you know for me it's just like it's almost like a stance against realism like it's not they're just it's just a movie and like um you know <laughs> yeah you know like it's just a movie and those images you know you can't attribute too much to them too much real which is I mean, I feel like it's kind of dishonest, you know, like, cause, cause right. as a director is invested in life in these images, you know, like to suddenly say <laughs> they're just images, just a movie. And I, I kind of see what he says, he's getting at because there, there is an element of sort of like, there's obviously an element of self-reflection in his films and, and kind of like self-parody too. I mean, there's certain, right. I, th- I think he is constantly kind of, or frequently bringing to the surface the idea that there's a fiction going on here. Right. I mean, it's first, big hit was Pulp Fiction, you know, the very title of it, like yeah. this is a fiction. And so I get, I get that and I, I like it, but I think it's, it's oversimplifying, you know, that's, that doesn't just like, that doesn't necessarily mean that the images don't have a certain, a certain weight and a certain force of their own and engage yeah. people in a way that, like you said, you know, you, you, it's outside your uh, control. That's why I think that's why Michael Haneke, uh, one of my favorite directors, he, he dislikes, Tarantino so much and he he's he objects much yeah. to his kind of film philosophy I do think that I really am uh drawn to Kurt Vonnegut's cynical take you know that art can barely have an effect especially <laughs> on global politics but I don't think that art could have stopped the Vietnam War it was it was a lot of institutional inertia and artists you know fundamentally do not have access to a lot of the the workings of the state and it's it's often the other way around you know i would say that uh in almost every case at least in the immediate in the year that it's produced art is downstream from politics mm-hmm. and that relationship only changes as you get further down the stream mm-hmm. so there are now people who can see things about the vietnam war the art produced because of it and grow up in such a way as to avoid something like that ever happening again mm-hmm. even though it has <laughs> probably will you know (laughs) but uh at least at least the art exists and is out there to contextualize history and to make something of it and i think a film is one of the most important ways to do that like some of i think america's primary memories of the vietnam war are film like when people think vietnam war they might think a handful of photos but almost just as equally or more, they think Apocalypse Now mm-hmm. and Full Metal Jacket, mm-hmm. yeah. a lot, probably a lot of people, Platoon. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. just in the way that uh, movies can be history and, 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 and quantify history is something that like 
I think a lot of people take for granted even, you know, yeah. there's, or the ways in which movies erase history and, or erase time, even as they are fundamentally like captured time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think in, when you think about things like Vietnam war and wars in general, um, and that there's something about the, there's something about film and as a public expression that does, uh, it's some it gives representation to a trauma, a social trauma, right, and historical trauma that I think is almost necessary in some way. You know, like you, you it's almost like a repetition compulsion that the trauma, that, that the very nature of the trauma is a large part of it is not necessarily the war itself and even the violence itself, but the idea that this kind of violence exceeds representation. You know, you can't grasp it. You can't really fully contextualize it, represent it, see it. And then it's only, you have to be able to imagine it to move past it in some way. And I think it's only through a medium like right. film, you know, that, that captures a, a whole society and offers images and, and some imaginative fantasy or, or, or visualization in some way for that whole culture that allows you to somehow start to be able to represent it, to see it, and therefore hopefully to move beyond it. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that, that thing I was just saying about like the trauma of film and the way it deals in that, this is probably a good time to launch into the penultimate section of the show, which is just talking about kind of key phrases. And he threw one out just a second ago, actually. It was the repetition compulsion, uh-huh. which I think is a, is a Freudian yeah, phrase, that's right? right? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're dealing in psychoanalysis. Uh, I mean, you've published books with uh, Slava Zizek, both him and yourself, as well as many other uh, writers kind of come from that, that tradition started by Freud, but then really enumerated later by uh, Jacques Lacan and other people who followed in yeah. that. Like, uh, And I should say, you know, I teach, I would say in this podcast, in fact, I would say like I, I, I we provide different perspectives in different areas. And I would say you probably have a much more broad just familiarity with film, you know, than I do. And my, and my specialty is more about the theory of film. So some people might have like a, a history of film or something. And mine is more in the theory. I, I obviously have to um, engage in film as part of that. But, you know, so in my, in my teaching, I have to know several different kind of approaches. And among those, I just find that the, 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 the approach that uh, it's often called the psychoanalytic approach is just for me the most fascinating and it comes down through from Freud to Lacan through Zizek and um, you know authors say like uh, Todd McGowan is, is is one of the most uh, important one of my favorites right well and I think it speaks to uh, yeah like a lot of artists are familiar on a base level with those kinds of psychoanalytic concepts and um, a lot of the movies we're going to be talking about engage with them i'd say a majority of movies that have anything to do with psychology the psychology of their characters are dealing at least with freud yeah, you know yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and it's really interesting to and then you know it, it go any deeper than that and you get into much deeper ideas yeah you know, like ones propped up by friedrich Sassur and giles deleuze and who's the uh object petite ah uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and that, um, that would be Lacan, but, you know, I, and I would say, yes, yeah, Assyrian uh, structuralism. And also, you know, I would say too, like, you know, yeah, it's not just that, you know, like a lot of people like Derrida, that kind of deconstructive. Jacques yeah, Derrida. Right. right. And I, I love that. I love a lot of that stuff. And, um, and it, it overlaps or it gets kind of adopted a little bit into psychoanalytic theory sometimes. And um, yeah. there's a lot of, it's not a hermetic world you know so there's a lot of other right. 
other interests and uh, and and verges off into philosophy in some degrees and to politics on other sides and all, all kinds of other interesting ways. Yeah, so those are going to be names that we're going to be throwing around a lot, but not necessarily ones that you need to have like an intimate uh, yeah. understanding of kind of where they're coming from because it is like like uh, Alex just said, like they're coming from all sorts of different practices and occasionally touch on film or there's stuff in the films that it really touches on it either intentionally by the creators or not sometimes in a really revealing way in ways that they're completely unconscious of which i think is a really interesting yeah i think that's a great point yeah i think and in fact i <laughs> i would even jump in there and say i think a lot of people misinterpret when you say psychoanalytic and they say oh you're like psychoanalyzing you know like you're psychoanalyzing the director or a character or even a, a, an actor or something like that and right and you are you're right it's like it's it's an unconscious part of the film in a way that and, and what's so interesting to me about the theory is that the fear the theory it should be that when you're looking at a film with this with this kind of framework it's never even really just about the film it's about the world it's about the psychic structures of our world and the things that structure ourselves in our world and the film gives us insight into that and often this kind of you know can be like a case study of that you know that's it, it, a good point that some directors are more self-conscious about it hitchcock notoriously read a lot of freud and um <laughs> you know you can't watch vertigo without thinking about freud you know oh absolutely yeah not. yeah just to get the definitions rolling, one of the ones I wanted to get started, and I think this is from your kind of your practices, is re-territorializing uh -huh. and de-territorializing. Yeah. And that's just a really long way to say <laughs> kind of making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. Uh -huh. And that is like one of my favorite things to do with art. And it's uh, one of the major things that like any discipline tries to do, but especially, I think, theory, you yeah. know, and at its base, I think at its most simple, that's that's what you really want to do when you're engaging with anything, even if not scholarly. Just like if, you, if you're wanting to engage with something, take what is thought to be known and turn it over and kind of see all the bugs underneath <laughs> or take something that people find alienating and, and see what is really human about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that's a great point. I like that. I like. I really like your connection with Deleuze's deterritorialization, reterritorialization, and the idea of the strange and the familiar, and and the, the the fluidity between those. Because one of the reasons Deleuze uses that particular metaphor is it's a colonialist metaphor. Like you ter literally territorialize something in the way that like a uh, empire will colonize or territorialize a space. And the, but my point just being that like that's a great idea that like art defamiliarizes, but, but familiarity, I, I guess Deleuze's metaphor points to the idea that the often the familiarizing of strange things is a power move, right? It's like using it in yeah. some way, co-opting it in some way uh, to be uh, controlling, to exploit, I guess would be a big thing in the film industry, you know, to take, uh, take the, take the newness and the strangeness out of it in order to make it something that's consumable and can make lots of generate, you know, huge, huge, huge amounts of money in the film industry, uh, but but at right. the expense of our imagination and our ability to imagine, because the new, the flip side is that the deterritorialized, the new, the strange, allows you to have a kind of freedom of imagination in relation to the thing. Now it suddenly becomes open, open to interpretation, open to something unexpected. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're doing a lot of both of those things and, and analyzing it. Yeah. I think that like, yeah, we're kind of getting at a lot of ideas. Yeah. Um, I think it was, were you the one in class at some point? We we're talking about the edit, just like at its most base thing. I think the edit and montage, mm-hmm. I believe you had like a, a miniature, the words coming to mind is sermon. Just <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Which sometimes, you get like, yeah, I love your sermons, man. Um, and just the uh about like how you know the edit like as a cut you know almost as like a cesarean uh thing can be this like this violence this trauma you know and how even the montage as as it sets up uh linear time uh could be interpreted as uh fascistic or (laughs) proto-fascistic Uh, which like i you know i laugh but like i think there's absolutely truth yeah. in there because uh like there is a lot um in order to make a movie that is like genuinely you know subversive in like all the right ways uh which might not even be possible you know you have to push against the medium itself mm-hmm. uh not just the industry oh, yeah. which is you know right. this you know which it kind of goes back to what Roger Ebert was saying you know how could something that he claims uh, spreads empathy uh, also be a product to consume mm-hmm. right. you know there's something about that 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 just doesn't square yeah. and I think that like in any kind of moral like you can't claim that something is a moral thing uh, and also it's something that can be bought and sold mm-hmm. you know like there's something yeah. at the heart there where every movie is is made it's it's a it's a product yeah. you know except well you know there's a handful there's like art films that are like projected on the side of buildings in, in yeah. secret but uh <laughs> but i think that's a, yeah most of the ones yeah yeah i think that's a great i love the, that's a great point i love the idea too of like how the cut enters into there because i do i think that if you're you know um and I, I, you know, I'm not that into technical language with film. You know, I feel like that's something too we can think about, like here and there. Introducing some terms like montage is a, is a pretty basic and important term thinking about film. But I think the most, for me, the most fundamental language, visual language of film is the cut. It's the thing that that is used can be used most radically in a way, and also most ideologically. And and that's right. That's a great point about like their 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 products to be consumed. Uh, and the forum has developed in a way that really uh, reinforces that a lot. And montage, I think, is one of the things that can be used in such an ideological way. Uh, it's the thing that often, you know, one of the interesting things about what montage is, you know, you think of montage as that, like putting together pieces let's say of a memory, you know, I like to think of like the most cliche example is like a rom-com and towards the end you have, you know, the two lovers have split up in some way and they had some, you know, long journey of a relationship. And then there's, a, then when they get together at the end, it has to be a montage that allows that to happen. <laughs> right. And it's like, when you go through the little pieces of their memories, they're put back together. And the, and the interesting thing about montage is, it's a bunch of pieces of fragments that make a whole that give you more of an impression of this coherence and a complementarity between the two lovers or whatever, and a whole that then concludes in this like almost faded way now, right? Because everything, when you put it in a montage, it all looks so sentimental, you know, you'd like tear up over them, like, you know, like (laughs) running on the beach and, you know, spilling food on the other one and laughing about it or something. Suddenly it becomes like, (laughs) like this sentimental moment. And then, (laughs) and then it, and then it ends and you have this like sense that they were meant to be together and blah, blah, blah. 
But the point, I think the point is that it's like, it's a now ready for consumption because it's this coherent whole that seems like you don't, it doesn't lack anything. And the cut can also, and of course that, that depends on cutting, but it depends on cutting in a such a way that you no longer see the cut, right? Like right. It's, it's a cut, cutting together that gives you a sense of wholeness that effaces the cut. You're not thinking about the cuts, you can't see them. But then cutting in a way that suddenly brings you abruptly up against a lack, a cut, which is like, again, I keep talking about Michael Haneke, but he's one of my favorite directors, <laughs> but he just has these cuts that are just like, you. they just stop, often they catch you in the middle of an emotion or something or response, and then they just go black. And then you're just left there. And it's not, you're like, that was not resolved. And I don't know how to feel. And it's like, and that to me, that's the, that's the radical thing about the cut is that it makes it impossible to consume this thing. Well, that's kind of leads into another term that we're probably going to be throwing around a lot, which is uh, the uncanny. Uh-huh. And I think a, a handful of uh, writers have kind of have made the assertion, which is probably correct, in that like film is either is or has the potential to be the most uncanny art form, mm-hmm. especially when you think about it. Like, yeah, like the yeah. idea of the cut, the idea of annihilating time, of of assembling meaning. That's we we I think take it for granted how difficult it is to assemble meaning out of uh, the world just in general. Like it's a constant effort uh that often fails that our brain is is working on and the uncanny has a very specific meaning inside psychoanalytic theory that relates to what we're talking about but also just you know the the definition that has come out of it colloquially i think works too just of yeah like michael hanukkah can show that to do that to take those things apart is is a strange Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. in itself It is, it's, it's, it's genuinely strange because, you know, in, in between, in between all those seams is people just standing around waiting to like appear to be somebody and then being told to do it. <laughs> and then people yelling and like cranes and shit moving around <laughs> everywhere. And yet, like when we see it uh, ourselves, it's, it's often seamless or the seams are being exposed at like at, at critical moments. Right. Uh, to, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's a great point. I think that the uncanny is so important for me for understanding film. Um, there's a an author, Nicholas Royal, who wrote a book um, just called The Uncanny. It's just a whole book about like there's different aspects of the uncanny and some of it's in film and literature and just the idea itself. But he has a, a little quote in that book somewhere that I can't remember exactly word for word, but it's something like uh, the whole film industry. And he's talking about as an industry, like the blockbuster kind of world. And he says, it's something like the whole film industry is a palliative to repress the uncanniness of film or something like that. And it's, right. uh, it's kind of, it's just like, that's, it's funny because he's got this section that's sort of like epigrams. And that's just one, I think that if I remember correctly, that's just one little epigram and then he goes on to something else. And, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of great though, because it implies that like, first of all, it's an uncanny medium, which I think is true. Um, but that like it's total like agenda and it, all this energy of film, the, the, the machinery of the film industry represses that, you know, like that, that is there to, to reassure you that, that the film films aren't uncanny and that, you know, the world isn't uncanny in some way and that that's sort of like what, yeah. in some way what people are paying for, right. They just want to not, <laughs> <laughs> not be traumatized, which is understandable, but <laughs> 
<laughs> but then the flip side is that like fil- uh, like great directors are really always in tune to the uncanniness of film and the uncanniness of the world in, in a lot of ways that the film is uncanny and it can therefore tap into some kind of sense of i mean certainly hitchcock's world is so uncanny you know um yeah uh, um and just every shadow looks wrong so yeah, yeah so yeah, often yeah yeah doesn't Zizek give, is it North by Northwest? Doesn't he give that example of that? Is there's like these windmills that are going and then one windmill is going in the wrong direction. <laughs> and there's something <laughs> just like really uncanny about that. That's the perfect thing. And this detail that sticks out in the world. And um, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. That, 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 that uh, it, it, it taps us into something about, and that, the other thing I love about the uncanny is that the uncanny, I think there's something, kind of ontological about the uncanny it's 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 there in the world yeah. it, it is true that i think we often try to repress it um but also that it's also but it's also enjoyable right like the uncanny is an aesthetic and it's it's creepy and it's off-putting and it's strange but it's also <laughs> you can really enjoy it that's why people love hitchcock movies that's why um uh, yeah. that's why i think jordan peele's movies are so fantastic and yeah. Define ontological for us oh, yeah. if you could. Uh, Actually, that's a good question. Maybe I'll go. Maybe I'll go on another sermon. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> but maybe. So I, I think you know. First of all, I think just the idea of ontological is just you know the the word ontological refers to uh, existence, uh, the study or question of existence, what exists, but also I think more importantly how it exists. So like uh, 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 you know we presume that a real person is more ontologically present than a copy, like a photograph of that person, right? That you're, you're not existing on the same, in the same ontological, uh, way. Um, and then something, uh, maybe even less so would be something like an idea or a theory, which would have no real ontological status. And that's where I think, um, we often tend to think that, but that's why I said, like, I think actually the uncanny has a real ontological status. It's really a part of the world in some material right. existential way or in, in its existence. And I think if I can maybe go on a little bit of a, a digression from that, because that brings up the, the go for yeah, it. <laughs> that brings up the question of images. And we were talking about this the other day, and like one of us was saying there's something magical about film and uh that, that was you. Yeah. yeah, I think I brought that up. There's something, there's something kind of magical about yeah. films. And I think that, that um, but I almost don't mean in a mystical way. I mean, almost in a literal way. And what I mean by that is that there's something about the images on the screen that have a special value that is um, more ontologically present than we like to typically give credit to or, or really allow for. And, uh, and I think, and right. I think there's some interesting ways to think about that. Um, uh, an interesting writer on that is Julia Kristeva. She's a, uh, she, she's also another psychoanalytic theorist, but she's kind of a rogue one. She kind of goes off in her own world. <laughs> Very interesting. But, you know, she talks a lot about the idea of images as, um, have, first of all, just the idea of the image has a special, uh, status psychological status for her because images for her are somewhere between thoughts and perceptions that they're actually they right. actually have this kind of world of their own and uh so she sees that as having a special relationship to the drive because she talks about our desires and fantasies are uh have to find it uh, uh, expression in images to reach consciousness right, right? and so right and so those images have a special relationship to the drive and the drive for Freud is the unconscious motive that keeps things, that keeps your, that, 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 
grounds your whole psyche. So uh, maybe as a, like a touch stone for, for listeners who are so familiar with Freud, uh, it's a great point in which people misinterpret Freud when they say, if you ever hear somebody say for Freud, the unconscious is the seed of instincts and like the id is this like, like big instinctual thing. Um, that's precisely wrong. Right. <laughs> Cause, <Huh>. because <laughs> the whole Freud's whole point is that, uh, the, the, the unconscious is the seat of drives. And he talks about the drive instead of the instinct. It's like an instinct in a way, but it's the psychic drive It's the psychic force in the same way you can think of like an instinct as a force to make you go hunt or eat or whatever kind of primal, uh, thing. But the drive is the psychic force. And, um, and so for Kristeva, you know, you think about the unconscious desires and this, the images on the screen have this almost in between there. Are, you can think of them almost like dream images or something more than just some right. kind of totally external copy. Like, okay, these are just, these images are just copies of things on the screen. That's a, I think that's a misleading way, even a false way to think about it, that they're more ontological than that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So the, the, I, I, so the idea of an instinct being, being physical and a drive being psychic in in the more psychic yeah. space yeah yeah that that's a good delineation to have yeah yeah you you brought up i have all sorts of thoughts about that but we'll, we'll, we'll keep trucking i'll see if i'll see if they, they circle back mix into yeah. it yeah you brought up fantasy uh-huh. um in the middle of yeah. that and i think that's something that you wanted to kind of touch on as well here. yeah yeah that's right i think like if we think about what psychoanalysis brings to film as a way to think about film there's some certain concepts that are very relevant and very pertinent here. And I think fantasy is a big one because often people think about fantasy as something uh, opposed to reality, separate from reality. And psychoanalysis is grounded in the idea that not only are they not separate, they're they're very intertwined. In fact, I would even say fantasy maybe mediates your reality. Maybe you see all of your reality through a kind of fantasy, which is in some ways a, your fantasy, but in some ways a social fantasy. And that's why uh, fantasy is often yeah. related to ideology. You know, I mean, right. people often think ideology, it's a set of ideas. Ideology is not a set of ideas. It's a fantasy, right? Like it's the way that you, it's a, it, 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 it's a <laughs> yeah. set of desires, right? What do you want? What's, what's good? What's bad? What's, you know, uh, ideas may be part of it, but it's a kind of, so, um, I think that that's a new way, a different way. You know, I had a quote actually, because it precisely, I had a quote, do I have it? Yeah. It's, uh, because it's actually, I thought it was good because it relates to fantasy and it's not a psychoanalytic theory at all, but it's a great way to kind of like express what fantasy is for psychoanalysis. And I think because it's not in that language, it's interesting. It's actually by a writer, uh, a great, I think a really, really interesting film writer, Stanley Cavell. It, and he says, I'll quote from him, he says, it is a poor idea of fantasy, which takes it to be a world apart from reality, a world clearly showing its unreality. Fantasy is precisely what reality can be confused with. It is through fantasy that our conviction of the world of reality is established. To forgo our fantasies would be to forgo our touch with the world. And I think that like that, that idea that Fantasy gives reality its value is maybe a more uh, of a true way to put it. And so films are a way of speaking to our fantasy, of speaking to fantasy. And if you can translate fantasy, I think that's when you can translate someone's relationship to the the unconscious because the drive is like generating our, our sense of identity and 
who we are. And fantasy is how we give a sense of coherence to who we are in the world around us. And it's often, therefore, the grounds of, of prejudices, iniquities, um, injustices, violence, you know, um, aggression, all those things. And so that's where I think fantasy is a very powerful uh, part of our world. And uh, uh, maybe to think about film, a good example of that would be Kristeva again, because Kristeva feels like because images have this uh, relationship to the drive, she kind of breaks it. She doesn't really go too much into this, but she basically kind of uh, implicitly breaks down films into two kinds of films. One is a kind of popular film that just replaces our fantasy with images. And it takes away, it's just like, here are these pat images and cliches that, that are ready for you to consume as your own fantasy. And you don't have to deal with your own drives in some way. And then there's films that she calls, so she calls that the specular, like that kind of image, the specular image. And then she calls it thought specular images that um, actually disrupt your fantasy and get you to engage them a little bit more, get them to think about, get you to confront them as a fantasy rather than just sort of like consuming them. Yeah, yeah. Well, who says that uh, the fantasy realized is the nightmare yeah yeah right? That's exactly the, right that's right like, yeah yeah that's right <laughs> no that's awesome yeah. and i think it's it's interesting thinking about like the complicated relationship that movies have with fantasy and and ideology itself like people a lot of people point to uh birth of a nation right you know as one of the kind of first uh epic films mm-hmm. yeah and one that really and you know if we're talking about like the the kind of power of art like that uh activated a lot yeah. of nascent things and it's kind of in that way where you know uh, art being downstream from politics but like there can be an ignition there mm-hmm. unfortunately this was one that was riding the tide you know it's it's difficult to push back with art but this one embraced mm-hmm. it the images of that film swelled to literally like lead to the rebirth of the of the fucking clan <laughs> and uh to a, a a new era of of white supremacy yeah. and and uh yeah i think that's a great example and and it's also it's also a good film it from the perspective of craft right um from the right and, and that's kind of dangerous because it's like it's such a good film means that it's such a good well-crafted film that it's very good at engaging your fantasy and giving it expression in a way that's so powerful and convincing right yeah. and i think that's a yeah in a way that's not alienating in a way that's not that's uncanny right. yeah 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 yes yeah, there's other ones where like the kind of seams would show, but Griffith knew enough of what he was doing. You'll have people teach it in the same way that they would teach like fascist poets, mm-hmm. because in order to talk about the craft and that's, yeah. that's yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, in a lot of ways, yeah, like ignore in the ways in which it diminished Ezra Pound's life or mm-hmm. whatever, or the ways in which you can use, yeah, like these, these art forms in a really... Uh, heinous way because i think this like you kind of touched on it a little bit as well but having a fantasy having an ideology isn't a bad thing right. you know i think yeah. a lot of people look at psychoanalytic analytic subjects and they think that all of them should be related back to like guilt or shame uh-huh. like right. that having the kind of spotlight on the way that you work is is something frightening or something that you should be guilty of and that's revealing obviously of, of like a kind of uh, puritan conscience america um mm-hmm. As as well as like the entire uh, the entirety of the West, but it's not it's it's not true. There's you know every one of these things is is exploration in just an honest way. It's not necessarily good or evil. Mm-hmm. In fact, to like give it those 
quantities to like say that any given fantasy is like to, to say you have to like rip it out of you, <laughs> right. you know, or just like be, be so constantly aware that you're like stuck yeah. in like a, uh, a purgatory, you know, uh, just between two points of like being aware and, and feeling it happen and then being aware. Yeah. And, that's um, right. And that's, you know, in fact, that uh, Zizek's or Lacan's phrase is uh, about therapy is to tra- traverse the fantasy. So it's like, Fantasy is actually important in psychoanalysis, like in particular therapy, because it tells you where where you're well in Lacanian terms, where the real is, like what's the real of your of your unconscious, which is to say the the kernel of something that's leading you to your behavior and your general sense of who you are, and the fantasy in some ways covers that up, but in, it, it's a way to. It's only through that that you can really can it really lead you to that, and so uh, I think that's absolutely right. Like there, there's not a sense of guilt and shame. In fact, I would say there's more of a sense of like ideally a sense of freedom, right? Like you can in coming to terms with your fantasy and understanding your uh, or getting some distance from your sense of ideology, you get some freedom from it, right? And and yeah, that's right. It's not it's not a it's not like you want to be divested of. You can't be divested of them, right? Like you, there's no <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> If someone says they are, they're right. lying, and there's right. something like much deeper and yeah. darker yeah. Like down there that they <laughs> have yet to find. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I, that that might actually transition into I think the last word I had written down. Oh, actually, I had two. Uh, so one thing that's come up a handful of times uh, is just like the existence of art under capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a word which I like more than uh, Anthropocene, yeah. uh, which is a word that people throw around when they're talking about uh, the kind of age of mankind. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people, yourself included, uh, point that out as a misnomer, when really the thing that has kind of changed, signaled a change in, in this geologic era is capital. It's it's money, it's industry, it's, it's the hierarchies that those things... Uh, and the acceleration that those things embody, mm-hmm. and for that reason, the the better word is is capitalism. Yeah. The Holocene is the ah. previous, uh, <laughs> and and now we we live in uh, yeah the geologic age of capital, capital. right? Yeah, the capitalism. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Which I think is yeah. It's seen through in a really interesting way uh, in uh, movies like Blade Runner yeah. and Children of Men, which, which we might be talking yeah. about later. But also, you know, it, it relates to the entire industry yeah. itself. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a really good point. Like they, we're, we're coming more. It becomes more and more uh, unavoidable to see our world in this sense of crisis. Right? That 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 we we've reached some level of universal planetary unsustainability and it's deeply grained in our society and we have to kind of see it but 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 and that's the capital scene and i think that like that's right but but then once you're in it and it becomes apparent you could see it all the way through the history of film in a lot of ways um that in some ways um and i think that partly comes back to the idea of capital like you were saying earlier like film has from its inception had um a, a tension with capital um, in a way that right. other arts maybe didn't have in their inception or as their history of an art form. And so, and I think that's right, like to think about the Anthropocene as a way to talk about, the, uh, one of the things I think is interesting about that too is like the Anthropocene often, like if you think about it as why Anthros in Anthropocene is because um, we see now the point where humans are so intertwined with their environment that, that the fate of the earth and the fate of humans are inextricable <laughs> in some way. Right. And so 
And so you you have this strange new world that we live in, this new geological era, which is also, you know, there's a good place for that word ontological, right? Like it changes your yeah. your relationship to the world around you. But I think that that like that assumption, that word Anthropocene implies that to me anyway, and I think to a lot of people, it sort of implies that it was there in humans, that it was going to happen, right? Like right. humans at some point were, were going, were destined because of their nature to kind of like overstep the bound between human and nature and start to take over as the, the all pervasive being. But I think that the word capitalism reintroduces something here that, that says it's not because that, that doesn't that fadedness kind of takes away your freedom from the situation and the ability maybe to do something or change something or whatever, but that, that it just seems to be inevitable and part of us, whereas capitalist scene introduces this idea that no, it's not necessarily human. Humans are the center of it. Yes, but it's capital that changed that relationship to make it a fundamentally unsustainable relationship and make it a, a crisis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that idea that like, I think the word Anthropocene, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was a like PSYOP by BP uh, <laughs> or whatever in the same way that like the, the personal carbon footprint yeah, is, you know, right. but it gets there. It is, it is in the same kind of vein, like, yeah, blaming the victim. Yeah. yeah I mean, like right. the idea that like it's, it's inherent to mankind ignores, you know, hundreds of societies that exist today, yeah, right. you know. And and uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands that have existed previously, you know, yeah. in in harmony or relative yeah. harmony with their like ecosystem, yeah. you know. Right. And it wasn't until the the arbitrary accrual of power that's happened in history, humans really started to change uh, the world in in some ways irreparably, mm-hmm. at least at least on the scale that we have and and to say yeah that like an anthropocene is also i think very like uh, uh doomy too <laughs> yeah. you know uh it, it kind of just assumes that like all right this is it we're gonna like ride this shit like <laughs> right into the, back into the sun <laughs> yeah. you know uh, <laughs> um, yeah and i think that yeah there's also an inherent optimism which i hope isn't misplaced that this is an era that could go away you know that's right and it might look a little silly uh if it only lasts for like 300 years and all the other (laughs) ones last for like tens of thousands uh, or millions of years you know but i'd rather it be like a goofy footnote um yeah than just the kind of thing that shows the end of it all yeah it's like uh it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? It's like the Anthropocene kind of fits into that because the end of the world is an epic film, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a rolling emmerich. You you tend to throw it around in conversations enough that I figure it's it's worth having a definition is uh, the word overdetermined. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. And this is something that hasn't quite come up in this conversation so far, but I think it's kind of overlays aspects of it. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a great word for this, for thinking about film, because uh, that's a, that's also one that comes from Freud, the, uh, the idea of overdetermination, and um, it, and it relates in particular to dreams and dream images, right? And so for Freud, anything, any image in a dream has to be overdetermined, or it, it just can't even get into the dream. And that overdetermined has to do with with the ways in which it draws on different symbols, meanings, and often different psychic energies, and often kind of plays them off of each other, you know? So it's like, in some way, something that you were repressing can latch onto something that you desire, and it can become a nodal point or some kind of powerful image in the dream. And, um, 
And, sure. and I think that's why for film, like there's something overdetermined about, for me in a way, there's something overdetermined about film images uh, almost in general, you know, like in the way, same way that they're <laughs> uncanny, right? There's something that like they reflect yeah. something uh, themselves and those images are themselves and they're not themselves at the same time. Well, it's weird. Yeah, I think there's that, um, you kind of mentioned it um, when you're talking about movies being in some way magical, mm-hmm. but uh, there's this thing when you like look at some of the images of films uh, the one that's immediately sprang to mind was the spiral, the spiral bun of yeah, yeah. lead actress of yeah. Vertigo, um, Kim Novak, yeah. and how that there's like this really crazy zoom that always yes. happens into yeah. that, and that's Hitchcock being like aware yeah. of of the way that images can be overdetermined, yeah. you know, in that like where all of a sudden it's not flat anymore, mm-hmm. and these like strange like three dimensional things start coming from it. Mm-hmm. Like I think that a lot of images in films are like weirdly pregnant in yeah. that way where either because they are coming from outside and find themselves in the film or just because of the way that they're situated in the film uh, manage to kind of spring out of it in a way that is really wild uh, sometimes. Like there's images that people recognize like from The Shining or Vertigo that have this like psychological resonance kind of no matter if you had seen them or not. And that is... A really wild thing to kind of illustrate the power yeah. that those can have. Yeah, that's great. Exa- that spiral is such a great example because it's. A, you're right about the conscious. I mean, it almost seems like he's like reading dream interpretations while he's making that movie, right? Because the spiral goes even from that image of the eye in the opening credits and the spiral uh, yeah. juxtaposed with the eye to the bun in Kim Novak's hair to to the famous shot of the spiral staircase. And then he's got the dream sequence, the actual dream sequence in the middle, uh, where Jimmy Stewart's head is like in the middle of the spiraling tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then it's yeah, it's just so overdetermined because it's like you're you're spiraling out of control. Like uh the the idea of that mixture of fear and desire about like going down the rabbit hole of that um of that temptation that draw into something darker uh and it's it really yeah. i think that's a great point it's really overdetermined and then you're that's right then images can be overdetermined i like that idea too that they can be overdetermined by the film partly by stuff outside the film which may or may not be in intentional like um um i don't know i was thinking about us and that image of the holding hands across that came from the 80s um yeah uh, that seemed like, I mean, that's a very overdetermined image in a lot of ways because of its externality to the film and the way that it touches upon like this idea of the social being so commercial. Because wasn't it a Coke commercial or something? <laughs> it was very, I remember that it was very commercial. Like it was the idea was that it was supposed to be this. Yeah. It was like really, it ended up being this really commercial um, event. Yeah. But um, no, I think that uh, also there's there's images um, that appear overdetermined once you step outside of their presence in film. Uh, one of the things that I think about a lot is is the presence of the military in film. Mm. I think that's a really important kind of unremarked upon aspect of, of, of filmmaking is that um, like 70 or 80% of the time that the military is featured in a movie, that studio has partnered with the Department of Defense in order to produce mm. it because it's one of the only ways you can get uh, reliably get military hardware, just like tanks, uniforms, guns, all that sort of stuff. But in doing so, you have to sign a contract and have a liaison on set who dictates how (laughs) the military is portrayed, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, And um, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's... 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes a whole lot of sense. Like, uh, you know, there's uh, Top Gun is a really famous uh, earlier example, but they were partnering like way back with John Wayne and uh, the Green Berets. And up until now, like one of the MCU films, Captain Marvel, was made almost in direct partnership with the Air Force. And before the film plays, there is an Air Force uh, a recruitment commercial that played in every theater it showed in that featured uh, the lead actress. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, like doing like a thumbs up and then speeding away in the jet, <laughs> which is really crazy. Like you know, and uh, one of those things where it's like uh, it, you start to notice every time you see the military in a film, there's this immense amount of ideology and this really almost uniform way in which they're portrayed, which is really strange. Like you see them doing like being so specific and it's because you know there's just a handful of guys from the dod who show up on set and say like this is how it goes like this is like what you get to say that is something that i think would alarm a lot of people uh looking from the outside in you know and it's something that like happens like when people talk about china like in china you have to screen a propaganda film as 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 america calls it every like twice a month in your theaters you know uh like a film made by the state you have to you have to uh if you have a theater in china people are like oh wow that's crazy like if you know imagine if we lived in a world like that (laughs) um what i think mark fisher said correctly in uh, capitalist realism that like all of the things all the things we were the most scared of happening in the soviet union that we thought could come to us if they were to ever uh, take us over which is uh, never a plan of theirs what have come true already here yeah and in some fashions uh worse yeah. than they ever were in the soviet yeah. union yeah precisely because it's that's right you know because that's a great example too with the military because it's like the the the, the ways in which we're our thoughts are influence in police is not by some actual oppressive big other who's saying, you know, you have to do this and you can't do that, but through enjoyment, right? Like, you know, through, through behind the scenes kind of influence on our enjoyment, what we can and can't enjoy, how they speak through that to us in a way. Uh, it's certainly befitting of capital, right? Like you, you, yeah. You buy it rather than have it <laughs> forced on you. And if you buy it, you're like, no, it's it's fine. I, I'm it's it's something I wanted, and I'm free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were two last things, uh, and it was one. Um, we haven't explained the name of the podcast. Yet. All right, that's right. <laughs> uh, so the idea of it comes from. Have, bear uh, uh, an immense physical resemblance uh, to uh, Alex Povey. Uh, <laughs> um, we're both like, I don't know, skinny bearded white dudes with uh, curly hair. Dark curly hair. Uh, yeah, generally uh, cut high and tight, uh, but that's gone a little off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to the point where I, I, I went as him. Uh, uh, for Halloween, a handful of times, <laughs> I showed um, up to my class, sitting at the yeah, desk yeah. already with my glasses and like uh, <laughs> I went, writing on the board. <laughs> Talk about uncanny moments. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and that, that's something that I was able to take advantage of. Is um, I was really expecting you to be late to this, and like uh, it's it's crazy how on time you've been to all these right. podcast meetings, which, which actually it warms my heart because it means that, uh, that you're that you're you're really into yeah. it uh, and, and prioritizing. Unlike my classes, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you also physically have to be at the yeah. classes, though. And there's there's a yeah a traffic uh, down uh, US twenty six right. is, is yeah. hellish. That's right. <laughs> uh, but like you said, yeah. So there's something uncanny about the doppelganger. So when I imagine you came in like five minutes uh, <laughs> after <laughs> after the hour struck, uh, and I had a bunch of nonsense written on the wall, <laughs> that must have been something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that was something. <laughs> yeah, and the only reason I got the idea is because in the class, uh, one of the major signifiers of the uncanny uh, is the doppelganger, right. um, and it comes up in this great story, The Sandman, which is a fiction piece, and we talked about it in relation to film, uh, in the amazing thing with Lost Highway, when a man has a phone call uh, with a guy standing right in front uh -huh. of him. Um, a great scene. And the, the yeah. language of it gets all screwed up. Like he says, yeah, how are you doing this? And he hands him the phone and says, ask yeah, me. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, um, <laughs> yeah, and that's the kind yeah. of, we're not always going to be talking about doppelgangers. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be starting with us, which is very much about mm -hmm. doppelgangers. But I think there's just, like we've said, there's, there's, there's in film, there's reflections of the self, there's representations, there's symbols, there's imagery, you know, there's, I think it's in a lot of ways, you know, it's that hall of mirrors. It's that thing where we extract ourselves and we see ourselves. That to me is speaks uh, just as much to the idea of like a doppelganger um, yeah. as it does, you know, the actual, like just an actual guy <laughs> <laughs> standing there. And that's, definitely the the, uh, the genre and the approach that i want to have to movies is just like looking at them as something uh that's a little bit unsettling you know a little bit of a item to be like suspicious of but also like curious about you know and and there is that possibility of it resolving into a single person and there's also the possibility of of uh, like violence and motorcycle crashes or <laughs> yeah. whatever as, as, as happens in all kinds of doppelganger yeah. movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a great uh, definition and way to frame film uh, and a great note to end on for our first zero episode, Doppelgangers yeah, on absolutely. Film. <laughs> <laughs> doppelgangers on Film. Now you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. All right. And just uh, before we close it out, we have five minutes before we hit two hours of recording. Uh, do you want to, you said you had a story about audience expectations that you wanted to save for episode oh, zero. Yeah. No, let's leave that um, for another time. Leave yeah. it for another time? <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> okay. Oh my gosh, yeah. the suspense. This is like, this is like a week now of me waiting to hear this story. <laughs> we'll do it in the us episode. Okay. All right. All yeah. right. All right. I'll accept it. Yeah. Well, it'll, um, it'll be a letdown now because you'll have to, you'll have waited too long for a little <laughs> anecdote, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm gonna uh, extract a whole lot of extra meaning out of it. And, and you can't, <laughs> it's over determined now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>